Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with Sam Gindon, who will tell us a little bit about the current state of the global economic crisis and how it would affect us here. We'll be speaking with Carlo Finelli about the budget that was recently passed under Mayor Rob Ford. And then we'll take a look at the dynamics of civic amalgamation and the kind of politics that proceeds from that with Dennis Pilon. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of January 26, 2012. Federal civil servants are walking around holding their breath these days, not knowing when their department is going to fall prey to the cost-cutting acts. In Ottawa, where one in five employees works for the federal government, the economy is already feeling the pinch with slower retail sales over Christmas and a cooling housing market. More than 5,000 have been eliminated already at more than a dozen departments and agencies, including Environment Canada, Public Works, and Human Resources and Skills Development Canada. Ironically, the 600 jobs cut at HRSDC are people who process employment insurance claims. There is now quite a backlog for such claims, and the recently unemployed face lengthy delays to get their first checks. Altogether, federal government spending cuts could chop between 60,000 and 68,000 jobs from the public service in the next few years, a report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives estimates. The 2012 Toronto budget was passed last week, notably without many of Ford's cuts to the gravy train, quote-unquote. These include closures of shelters, daycare spaces and pools, and cuts to community grants, public libraries, and the TTC. A recent poll conducted by the Canadian Union of Public Employees found that 64% of Torontonians are in favour of continued funding for public services and 46% believe Ford is on the wrong track in addressing the city's priorities. On the eve of the Crown First Nations Summit in Ottawa last Monday, 18 First Nations across the country were added to the First Nations Land Management Agreement, which was first announced in the 2011 budget. Some 34 other First Nations in Canada already have land deals. They give First Nations the same autonomy as municipalities to develop their own lands without having to seek federal approval for their investment plans as required by the Indian Act. Hereditary chiefs of the Gitsan First Nation have reversed their decision and rejected a deal with Enbridge Incorporated, the company behind the Northern Gateway Pipeline that offers interested Indigenous groups a 10% equity stake in the project. Gitsan Chief Clifford Morgan cited the potential environmental damage that comes along with the pipeline and said they will stand together with all other groups who oppose the pipeline. The blockade of the Gitsan Treaty Office continues despite this new decision. The blockade started in December after the First Nations Treaty Society originally agreed to the deal with Enbridge. A letter from the Canadian Science Writers Association addressed to the Prime Minister urges Harper to stop muzzling government scientists and afford them the right to speak freely about their research. The letter recounts stories from government scientists denied the right to speak to media about their research. As it stands, all media requests must go through public affairs officials in Ottawa, where most are denied. 
Canada's authoritarian stance on scientific integrity and freedom stands in stark contrast with Obama's scientific integrity policy in the U.S. that affords scientists the choice to submit statements of opinion to Washington to change government policy or simply indicate when speaking to media that they are speaking as an individual. Tax returns show the Canadian government has been the beneficiary of millions of dollars in largesse from some of the wealthiest private organizations in the United States. And some of that money came from the same U.S. groups that helped fund Canadian environmentalists. The grants to the federal government come to light as Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Conservatives and the pro-oil sands website ethicaloil.org take Canadian environmental groups to task for accepting money from big American foundations to help finance their campaigns against the oil sands. Natural Resources Minister Joe Oliver accused quote-unquote environmental and other radical groups of trying to use money from quote-unquote foreign special interest groups to hijack hearings on a pipeline that would bring Alberta oil sands bitumen to a port on the British Columbia coast. But the Canadian government seems to have no qualms accepting grant money from some of the same private U.S. foundations. For example, U.S. tax records show the California-based William and Flora Hewlett Foundation gave $750,000 to the David Suzuki Foundation and a whopping $40 million to the International Development Research Centre, a federal crown corporation. The London Times reported Sunday that Israeli officials told the United States they would give President Obama only 12 hours notice if and when it attacks Iran. Israel also said there would be no coordination of an attack with the United States. The Times speculated that one reason for this development is that Obama would not prefer to attack Iran because they may respond by blocking a major shipping route which may increase the cost of oil. After a one-day internet protest, including a blackout of Wikipedia, the United States has postponed voting on the Senate's Protect Intellectual Property Act and the House's Stop Online Piracy Act. While the acts are being promoted as tackling online piracy, thereby restoring billions in lost revenue to the U.S. economy, many groups argue they will over-regulate and censor information on the Internet. The same day the U.S. postponed voting, the FBI served arrest warrants for owners of one of the largest file-sharing sites, megaupload.com. Those are the alert headlines for the week of January 26, 2012. Now for Around the Left for the week of January 26, 2012. On January 29th, from 4 o'clock p.m. to 6 o'clock p.m., come to Eurozone from Greece to Germany, a talk by Paul Kellogg aiming to explain the crisis by focusing on the contradictions of capitalism as outlined by Marx. The talk will look not only at the Eurozone's weakest economy, Greece, but also its strongest, Germany. Paul Kellogg is a political economist who teaches in the graduate program at Athabasca University. The talk will take place in room 8201 of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, 252 Bloor Street West at St. George Subway in Toronto. The forum Solidarity versus Austerity will take place Tuesday, January 31st at 7 o'clock p.m. in the Ottawa District Labour Council Boardroom, 280 Metcalf Street. The Ontario Coalition Against Poverty's Raise the Rates campaign will be hosting a film screening and panel discussion featuring John Clark of OCAP and Cindy Foreman of CUPW. 
join other workers in discussing why trade unionists need to join the fight for increased social assistance rates and a decent income for all. There will be free snacks and refreshments. The location is a child-friendly and wheelchair-accessible space. A 5 to $10 donation is suggested, but no one will be turned away. The McGuinty government is planning painful cuts to health care, education and social services. Under these mounting attacks, the Ontario Public Service Employees Union approached a national advo advocacy group called the Public Services Foundation of Canada to hold a commission on quality public services and tax fairness. The PSFC and the OPSEU will hold province-wide hearings and town hall forums, and citizens of Ontario are encouraged to make submissions. A town hall in Windsor will take place February 2nd from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock p.m. at the Windsor Central Library, with the hearings taking place the following day from 9.30 a.m. to noon. To apply for standing, email Commission Officer Kiera Chion at kchion at opseu.org. On February 4th at 11.30 a.m. in the Bayhan Centre of the University of Toronto, attend the one-day political conference Occupy, Strike, Resist, How Do We Beat the 1%. The next steps of the movement and the best ways to challenge capitalism will be discussed during numerous workshops and meetings all day. For more information, email OccupyStrikeResist at gmail.com. On February 8th, from 6 o'clock to 8.30 p.m., the Aboriginal Women Reclaiming Our Power Project, Moon Voices, of Ganiganichik Inc., and the Institute for Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Winnipeg invite you to participate in Moon Voices Share Indigenous Mothering, creating a place of love for the next seven generations. It will be a sacred space and opportunity for Indigenous women to listen to the stories of other women, share our own stories, and think about the ways in which our roles as mothers, grandmothers, aunties, sisters, and friends help shape our communities. The event will take place in the Bowman Centre and is free and open to all. For more information, contact Kim Hunter at iwgs at uwinnipeg.ca or Shannon Cormier at scormier at kanikanichik.ca. On February 8th, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 10 o'clock p.m. in Ottawa, come to the Unlawful Access Legislation Forum, which will examine electronic surveillance laws and how they invade privacy. Taking place in the amphitheater at St. Paul University, 223 Main Street, the event will feature the launch of the book The Internet Tree, The State of Telecom Policy in Canada 3.0, a viewing of a mini-documentary on these issues called Unlawful Access, as well as panels and discussions. For more information on this event and a list of panelists, search for the Facebook event page. That's all for Around the Left for the week of January 26, 2012. With the global economic crisis still upon us and the IMF indicating that Depression-era conditions may be on the horizon, we're interested in knowing exactly what are the factors here. How does Europe in particular play into the unraveling situation? To join us, we're accompanied by the former assistant to the president of the Canadian Auto Workers and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. So, Sam Gindin, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, could, you, you. could you plop, indicate to us, um, in your estimation, how serious should we take the debt crisis in Europe currently? Um, 
Well, it should be taken very seriously. I mean, you know, the, the, this, this is a crisis that uh, actually began in the United States. Uh, the U.S. has a certain capacity to deal with it because of the role of the American dollar. One of the differences in Europe is that Europe doesn't, at the uh, European level, have uh, the kind of capacities that a state does like the United States because it's divided up into, into countries. There is a common currency, but the central state doesn't have a lot of the capacities in terms of monetary and fiscal policy. And that means that in this kind of a crisis, it's not just a financial crisis, you've got uh, the problems in terms of dealing with different nations who have different interests, who resent uh, bailing out or supporting countries that uh, are in trouble. So it's quite serious at that level in terms of actually getting your hands around trying to fix this. And it's part of the continuing uh, financial crisis. Uh, what makes this so um, complex and uh, difficult is that, on the one hand, uh, states are trying to regulate finance, but they don't want to regulate them to the point that they lose what they see as the dynamism of finance. So it's not a question of taking them over. That's one of the contradictions they have to deal with. And the other contradiction they, they have to deal with is that in order to keep the banks happy and to boost their confidence, uh, they, ha they run austerity programs. And those austerity programs mean that even when you begin to fix the crisis for the banks, which is what they're trying to do right now, they're trying to figure out how they solve this problem for the banks, um, it means that a lot of the cost is being shifted on to workers. And in the context of Europe, that's, uh, that affects people very unevenly, and part of the crisis is about how unevenly this affects people across Europe. Well, does, don't these austerity programs, I mean, is, isn't it pretty clear that uh, when people are faced with these sorts of uh, measures that they end up spending less and uh, are, are not able to, that, that it works against the kind of economic recovery that you should be seeing, no? Yeah, no, that's exactly part of the... Part, part of the uh, contradiction is exactly that, that in order to uh, fix the banking system, in order to restore the confidence of the banks, you end up doing these austerity programs, which uh, mean that the, the economy actually gets into worse shape, and that has an impact on the banks. I, I think what will happen and uh, is that they're trying to use this moment uh, to really discipline labor and to weaken labor and at the same time fix the banks. At some point, to get out of this crisis, they are going to have to stimulate the economy. And the way they've been doing it primarily has been to uh, add money to the economy, flood the economy with money. Uh, but that has a very slow impact, if any impact at all. What you, eventually, what you have to do to get out of this crisis is to get, engage in major, massive spending. Uh, and not just through uh, stimulus, through taxes, but through direct spending. But at the same time, it is complicated because spending alone, you still have to deal with the financial problem as well. You still have to deal with the fact that you're dependent on these private banks who have this uh, enormous weight in the system, and therefore you're dependent on having to fix them. And, and, you know, that's what makes all of this both complicated and raises the question of who's going to pay for this. And we've just gone through a period of, uh, you know, incredible growth in inequality. And what we're seeing through this crisis is even more inequality. And one of the things that this crisis really shows is a lot of people kept thinking about 
Europe as a counterexample, Europe as a social democratic counterexample to the United States. And what we see is that, you know, we're finally putting that myth to bed. What we're seeing in Europe is it gravitating towards the American model ever tight, ever tighter. And it, it's highlighting the fact that what we're seeing is a crisis in capitalism. And I don't mean that they're not going to get out of it, but they're only going to get out of it after uh, imposing an awful lot of pain on the rest of us. And one of the questions that has to be asked is, well, what's our response? Do we just want to fix the system so we can continue with neoliberalism? Because that often happens when there's a crisis. All people want to do is get back to normality. Or, instead of the offensive all being on the right and all the alternatives being pushed on the right, do we actually begin to put other alternatives on the agenda? And what those other alternatives would have to mean is we begin to, ch to challenge the role of finance in the economy. We begin to talk about the fact that if you're going to treat finance as a public utility in the sense that we all depend on it, so we have to make sure it's functioning, then why don't we make it into a democratic utility so that that actually becomes, all that bailout money becomes an investment in our future. If we're going to pay the price anyways, why don't we actually see it as an investment that we'll get something out of through taking over the banks? That's one part of this. And the other part of it is we have to really deal with challenging private property in terms of, you know, if we don't challenge property rights, we're not getting jobs. What we've seen, even when the economy was doing well, was that the good jobs have been disappearing anyways. And, uh, you know, this isn't just a question of Keynesian stimulus. Uh, that hasn't been working. So we really have to, we really have to ask some quite radical questions about where we've been and where we're going. And Sam, if we don't do that, things are going to get worse. Sam, you, your, your points sort of raise a, a, a point, a slogan made by the Occupy movement. You know, we won't pay for your crises as if this uh, crisis we're seeing currently is ultimately a crisis of capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, so as resistance to government austerity grows, uh, as we've seen in Greece and Spain, Wisconsin, um, could it grow to the point where we are, the, the governments cannot implement these austerity measures on behalf of the banks? And, and where would that lead? Well, so far, uh, you know, there's, there's been resistance. You know, the significant thing, thing about the Occupy movement is, first of all, it showed that audacious action actually can touch a nerve and should be considered much more broadly. Um, it showed that if you if you begin to really put on the agenda the question of inequality, not just things like deficits, um, that also touches a nerve and gets to some basic truth that everybody should be talking about. But at the same time, it was only a protest. Uh, you know, the question is, is this, is this a moment that we saw with Occupy, or is it a movement? And so far, it's only a protest, a moment. And the protests that we've seen so far uh, don't really match. I'm not talking about Greece. I'm talking about the protests here in North America. The protests that we've seen so far um, are really only some early stirrings. It's not clear yet, you know, what the response is going to be. We've got an we've got a situation in London, Ontario, with Caterpillar, where a company has uh, wants to cut wages by 55 percent. Well, the question is, how is the labor movement going to respond? If it's a traditional response of being militant on the picket line, that won't solve the problem. The labor movement is going to have to come up with much more radical solutions because the moderate solutions aren't practical anymore. And so so this is really a challenge to, you know, our, our ability to build out of this 
a left, not just some resistance, but a left that begins to really develop the capacities to take on capitalism. And we're very far from that right now. Uh, it's not clear that coming out of this crisis, there will be that kind of a movement. And that's the challenge, if we can build that kind of a movement. Because if we can't, um, you know, there will be some stimulus, because there has to be. You just can't get out of this crisis, even from capital's perspective, without some stimulus. But that stimulus will go alongside, at the same time, weakening the labor movement and attacking labor. So, you know, you may have some stimulus in the economy, and the way you fix that in your budget is by restraining uh, labor. So uh, they may get out of this crisis, but the period before the crisis wasn't so wonderful, and neoliberalism will continue. That's what we have to challenge. Well, uh, Sam, it's uh, been a pleasure. We appreciate your insights, but I'm afraid we have to leave it there. But uh, I want to thank you for for sharing that uh, analysis with us here at Alert. Thank you. And uh, bye. I've been speaking with uh, Sam Gindon. He is uh, the former assistant to the president of the Canadian Auto Workers and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. The months-long fight over the City of Toronto's budget is important not only because Toronto is Canada's largest city, but because it might well be the precursor to what people on other cities will be facing over the next few years. Cities are all in an austerity mode, much like the provinces and the federal government itself, even more so as many services have been downloaded on municipalities without a shift of revenue sources of an equivalent degree. To give our listeners an insight into this vitally important issue, Alert has contacted a man well-versed in the Battle of Toronto's City Hall. Carlo Finelli has worked for the City of Toronto over the last decade, most recently as a Children and Youth Program Coordinator. Currently, Carlo is in the final stages of completing his PhD at Carleton University and is editor of Alternate Roots, a journal of critical social research. So, welcome to Alert. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, Carlo, before uh, telling us about the budget uh, that uh, eventually passed at last week's uh, exciting City Hall meeting, could you summarize, uh, in your view, what Mayor Rob Ford had intended to cut? Well, it was very clear since uh, Ford's election in 2011 uh, what his mandate was, and that was basically to sell off as much of the city as he could, and this meant not only privatizing things, but really looking to marketize in a lot of ways the uh, programs and services that Toronto Torontonians have come to rely on. Um, Leading up to this budget in particular, uh, we have to keep in mind the backdrop of uh, the 2011 budget, uh, which really uh, set the terms of how this budget was going to to happen moving forward. And what had happened there was a number of things uh, were initiated, such as freezing property taxes for 2011, eliminating a a $64 million source of revenue in terms of the vehicle tax, um, increasing wages for uh, Police of around 11.5% over four years, offering buyouts, um, cutting expense budget, and things like this. And this really set the terms of what was going to happen over the course of this budget. And for the 2000 budget, Ford was really adamant on cutting the budget by about 10%, which in a 9.4, uh, sorry, 9.1 million budget, billion dollar budget um, was really about $900 million or so. Um, so some of the things he had wanted to cut were food for hungry children, a hardship fund for sick and, and the poor, community center programming for uh, youth and, and seniors at priority centers, arts and community grants, things like snow clearing, grass cutting, as well as a number of homeless shelters and, and reductions to, to uh, 
transit services. Uh, bear in mind also that this included uh, layoffs of around 1,200 work, uh, 1,200 existing workers as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and what, uh, in terms of like th- w- these impacts, uh, on top of uh, what the province uh, has been doing, uh, like how, how do you see those forces combining to impact on uh, Toronto's most vulnerable people? Well, it's very interesting, actually, because we hear repeatedly uh, in the media as well from uh, populist commentators uh, speaking on Toronto's budget well, that that's really Toronto has a, has a, a budget crisis. And if, if we consider this in historical perspective, we have to bear in mind the cutbacks which occurred uh, particularly throughout the 1990s, but even now have not returned to levels of, of costs shared between the province and the city um, prior to amalgamation in 1998. We've only seen recently uh, the provincial government of the Liberals dealing with their own um, budgetary problems in terms of a deficit, um, pick up their share of the portion in terms of Ontario Works, which is um, things related to income and employment security or funding for the TTC. Um, so this really played out in terms of how Toronto dealt with it. With lacking revenue sources, the only way to really reduce its expenditures was either to cut services or to look to other means uh, of revenue. Um, in the previous Miller administration, looked to increase revenue through the municipal land transfer tax and the vehicle transfer tax. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, Ford had already cut the $64 million source of of vehicle tax, and he's uh, very adamant on uh, eradicating the um, municipal land transfer tax, which brings in about $317 million yearly. Uh, There's really no way that this budget uh, shortfall can really be um, gapped any other way, uh, considering without significant cuts. <clears throat> were, were there any? Uh, let's maybe focus a little bit on the uh, the debate that took place in the chamber itself. Uh, was there there anything in particular that got emphasized? Uh, was there any gains that may have been accrued from that uh, debate? Well, the hero of the story to really come out in in, in the media has been uh, Josh Cole, who proposed uh, taking fifteen million dollars out of a hundred fifty four million dollars surplus, which was left over uh, at the end of the year, and putting those. Toward, and it, uh, putting that towards saving some of the uh, cuts being proposed. And, and a couple of the things that were saved, and these were very important, were um, two of you know, seven indoor swimming pools that were proposed, a student nutrition program for about 14,000 students from low-income families, um, priority uh, services for youth and seniors at, commu- at 12 school-based community centers, about $5 million worth in um, transit cuts, uh, as well as uh, three shelters and the immigrant women's health center. Those are really the key things that were saved. But there were a number of cuts that actually went through as well. And this included things like cutting the library budget by about 10% or roughly $7 million, which will result in fewer hours of service and uh, its 59 branches and a number of fewer collection items. Uh, a number of daycares were closed. Uh, five indoor swimming pools were closed. Uh, bus routes were re- reduced, as well as a number of cuts to different community partnership and investment programs. Hmm. Um, what about transit? Well, transit's seen a reduction in about three dozen of its routes. Um, and this was really a, a, about $5 million of that uh, $15 million went towards transit. But Toronto's struggling with, with finding about $45 million in servicing fees for purchasing, um, purchasing new fleets for its subways and, and, and streetcars. Um, traditionally, uh, Financing large infrastructural purchases through deficits have been historically a, a good way of, uh, you know, a fiscally responsible way of financing things. But 
Ford administration really seems adamant on, on not getting into debt. You know, this debt mantra, this, this notion of fiscal crisis is really what permeates uh, his entire, uh, his entire uh, uh, mantra, really. Well, it seems to me that uh, another very important area is housing. And uh, so what uh, kinds of impacts uh, would this budget uh, mean for the uh, for people, particularly low-income people? Uh, well, housing is very important, like you mentioned. In, in the previous 2011 budget, about 22 community housing units were sold off. And one of the things that's currently before council, and Ford actually just delayed this, uh, I believe, just yesterday, is a, is a decision to sell 706 more housing units. Um, Toronto Community Housing faces a, uh, a shortfall of about $615 million in backlog repairs. And one of the ways they're trying to, um, Im- to improve upon those, uh, improve, make, make, sorry, re- improve those backlogs is to sell off about 706 properties. Now, this is, in many instances, a very irresponsible way of selling it. Um, of uh, financing its its uh, deficits, but um, in terms of housing, particularly Toronto has a, an annual backlog reaching well into the thousands, and, and as one of as Canada's second most expensive city to live in, behind Vancouver, it's really polarizing the city between the inner core, downtown core, and the suburbs, which really lack transit. And, and what we see here is, is the interconnectedness really between housing and transit. And the social services and where they're pro- provided between community centers and, and, and such, which is really an interesting combination of, of factors coming together. Could you tell us about the uh, the organizing effort to to, to fight back uh, in, to fight for those uh, and maintain those vital city services? How far, how much of a setback is this, and and how will uh, will the uh, these forces, uh, I guess, reorganize themselves to? Uh, to make those gains? Mm-hmm. Well, Toronto's uh, progressive left community has been really organize, organizing since the election of Ford, but this really has galvanized since uh, the budgetary proceedings happened, especially over the last month or so. And leading up to the election, uh, a few community groups in particular, such as Stop the Cuts, uh, No One Is Illegal, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and the Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly, were really organizing um, not only to get social justice activists out in their communities um, and discussing things with their counselors, but really working closely together in a lot of ways with the Toronto and York Region Labor Council, which in a, which really pushed forward the agenda of stop of stopping these cuts. And what occurred was massive community mobilizations um, during budget deliberations. So thousands really packed city hall, um, demanding that these cuts didn't go through. And the important thing, the interesting thing, actually going forward is whether or not the, uh, the, mobilization, the mobilization of the labor movement and the small elements of the radical left can really establish a, a foothold or an organizational foundation to carry the, these things forward. Um, as, uh, interestingly, as we move forward, in addition to the Toronto Community Housing Sale, a uh, proposed sale, sorry, of the 706, um, million, uh, sorry, 706 units, um, TTC fares are going up by $0.10, cents, which is roughly an equivalent of $30 million in, in new user fees. Recreation program is going up by another $10 million. And we face a number of issues related to dwindling, dwindling um, environmental services, and as well as garbage. Has, a portion of garbage collection has also been privatized. So one of the things moving forward that's really going to be the, the, 
the turning point for Ford administration or Toronto's left progressive forces is what happens with with the the current labor uh, contract negotiations between its uh, four major two major unions but four unions altogether which represent civic workers or about 35,000 civic workers in, in the city well uh, Dennis uh, excuse me, Carlo, we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, we thank you very much for um, sharing that uh, perspective with us. Great, onward. thank you very much. And I've been speaking with Carlo Finelli. Uh, he is uh, uh, he's, uh, worked for the City of Toronto over the last decade. Uh, he has uh, worked most recently as a children and youth program coordinator and is currently in the final stages of completing his PhD at Carleton University. If you would like to know more about Sam Gindin's views on the economy, pick up the January-February issue of Canadian Dimension magazine that features a roundtable on the global economic crisis with Sam Gindin, Jim Stanford, and Marjorie Griffin-Cohen. It has been argued that electoral success of right-wing mayoral candidates like Rob Ford in Toronto, as well as in centres like Ottawa and Winnipeg, is due at least in part to the amalgamation of independent communities beyond the city proper into the dominant municipality. If Is the process of civic amalgamation creating a right-wing voter base in suburban and exurban communities to the detriment of urban needs? And to what extent... Uh, is political opportunism in this regard guiding such policy choices? To help examine those dynamics, we're joined on the line by Dennis Pilon, professor of political science at York University and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. So th- welcome to the show, Dennis. Thanks for having me. Okay, could you maybe uh, elaborate a little bit on that whole principle of, of civic amalgamation uh, leading to these sorts of uh, right-wing uh, Rob Ford-type regimes? Well, I mean, I think the amalgamations happen for lots of reasons, uh, but usually not for the ones we were told. Uh, you know, we were told in the case of Toronto that, of course, it was all about efficiency, making civ- civic government work better, reduce uh, duplication of services, yada, yada, yada. When, of course, if we look at what was going on at the time, it was fairly obvious a political ploy by the Harris Conservatives at the provincial level to remove a base of opposition that was very effectively resisting the Mike Harris agenda. So, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly about uh, swamping, but it accomplished the same thing. Uh, Now, initially, uh, the the amalgamation uh, benefited the right. Then it appeared that there was a bit of rallying of the center, center center-left, under David Miller as mayor. Uh, But now uh, we've seen a backlash, and I, I think, yes, Rob Ford's election is probably very much due to the new communities added to Toronto after amalgamation. So do you see uh, examples of this uh, in other centres? Maybe is there another example that helps illustrate the phenomenon? Well, it's not just uh, something that's going on at the, at the municipal level, just for municipal politics. This carving up of municipal areas and sort of flooding them, if you will, with the suburbs or, or rural areas is also done at the federal and provincial level. So politicians, uh, right-of-center politicians, if they feel they can benefit from it, will often try to carve off bits of urban areas where they don't really have enough support to win and then lump that in with areas where they've got lots and lots of votes. What that does is it allows them to maximize their support and divide their opponents. One of the best examples of this are the federal ridings in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan is fairly evenly divided between right and left, but the left in the last three uh, federal elections has elected almost no one. The Conservatives have won almost 100% of the seats 
in Saskatchewan, primarily because of the practice of cutting up the urban areas and pasting them on to these larger rural areas. Hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, like both, as you say, federal and provincial. Uh, I, I note, as far as the city case is concerned, that uh, constitutionally the cities are effectively creatures of the provinces, uh, that uh, basically they exist at the pleasure of the provinces, they're subordinate to them. So I'm wondering what that interface, that relationship between the cities and the provinces, how that's working to, to exacerbate or, or possibly ameliorate the, that phenomenon, at least civically. Well, to the extent that we see right-of-center governments in power at the provincial level, uh, it gives them uh, a great advantage if they've got, you know, like Harris felt, a very pesky uh, city government that was uh, an example of how politics could be done differently and quite successfully. So, you know, the power that the province has to essentially wipe out municipal government, and that's, that's basically what Harris did. He wiped out local government and replaced it with essentially a regional government. Uh, and, and there was nothing that the municipality could do. Uh, you know, various citizens tried to rally uh, against it. The city held, the old city held a referendum where the people voted it down, but it was all for nothing because the province has all of the power to control what happens with municipalities. Well... Uh, I'm I'm reminded of <clears throat> Stephen Harper's infamous remarks about uh, the the conservative hat trick uh, in uh, Ontario during the uh, last provincial election. Uh, what can you see as being a possible remedy for this situation? Oh, oh gosh. Well, um you know, despite all of the problems that we saw with the Ford Nation, uh you know, he has become increasingly the victim of his own success. Uh, you know, it is Rob Ford all the time, and the more people see of Rob Ford, the less they like of him. There still is no replacement for doing the work in the communities. Uh, it's a challenge because now the ridings are bigger, but ultimately that's the most direct way is to defeat them in the next election. Um, and, and in the process, mobilize the communities uh, so that they really understand what they're getting when they vote for someone uh, like Rob Ford. At the long term, you know, my issue had always been if we could change the voting system so that we couldn't have this situation where right-wing parties can get a provincial government with 40% of the vote and then have 100% of the power, that would be another way of trying to protect these other levels of government. But we haven't been very successful with those strategies uh, in Ontario, B.C., or P.E.I., where they've tried to change the voting system. Is there nowhere in the country that you looked? I mean, I'm, I'm reminded uh, we saw Calgary uh, elect a, a very different kind of mayor in, in, uh, in, in that uh, last election. Yes. Uh, now, I mean, in that case, uh, you know, that was a great victory, I think, for, you know, the progressive forces in Calgary. I think it was an important message for the rest of the country who maybe has their own ideas about what Calgary is, and that shows there's more to Calgary. But let's not forget, you know, that fellow won on a vote split. Uh, he won on a, you know, there were two very clear right-of-center candidates, and he managed to go up the middle. Uh, so what's the lesson there? Well, divide. You know, people have got to look for the divisions on the right. Find where uh, uh, the right uh, does not get along and exploit it. In the case of Rob Ford, I think we're already seeing that with uh, some of the splits on council, where, you know, Ford is, you know, pretty vulgar, extreme right-winger, not very sophisticated, and uh, there's a whole bunch of people who initially were with him who are now backing away because they've realized how blunt his approach is. Well, uh, Dennis Pilon, I want to thank you for sharing those insights with us. Uh, very interesting and uh, very timely. 
Uh, thank you for joining us on Alert. All right. Thanks for having me. And uh, we've been uh, speaking with Dennis Pilon, professor of political science at York University and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is a Weapon. On this week's show, a little bit of a retrospective, but very much in the context of what we've seen over the last few months of the Occupy movement, the things that we had a few years ago with Struggle in Seattle, the G20 in Toronto. This movement that's happening now is is beginning to be kind of a ferment that we haven't seen for an awful long time. It's not very sophisticated. It's not very strong yet, but it's a really kind of nice beginning. But I was thinking very much about the music of that, and I was thinking about where that music really comes comes from and what the history of radical music is. And my favorite part of the history of radical music pretty much has to be the American Civil Rights Movement. And I thought to myself, it would be really good to bring some of those songs back out for people to hear and for people to get those kind of melodies into their soul. So here is Woke Up This Morning With My Mind Stayed On Freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind Stayed on freedom Oh, oh. 
That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Old Freedom. Keep your eyes on the prize and woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. You know, the Civil Rights Movement really was an extraordinary inspirational event and series of events for songwriters. There was good times, there was bad times, a lot of people got killed. There was a lot of martyrs and Phil Oaks, of course, was one of the best songwriters of the time. And he wrote this wonderful song about Medgar Evers. Here is Phil Oaks with Too Many Martyrs. In the state of Mississippi many years ago A boy of 14 years got a taste of southern law He saw his friend a-hanging, his color was his crime And the blood upon his jacket put a brand upon his mind Too many martyrs and too many deaths Too many lies, too many empty words were said Too many times for too many angry men Oh, let it never be again His name was Medgar Evers And he walked his road alone Like Emmett Till and thousands more Whose names we'll never know They tried to burn his home And they beat him to the ground But deep inside they both knew What it took to bring him down Too many martyrs and too many deaths Too many lies, too many empty words were said Too many times for too many angry men Oh, let it never be again The killer waited by his home, hidden by the night As ever stepped out from his car into the rifle sight He slowly squeezed the trigger, the bullet left his side It struck the heart of every man whenever his felon died Too many martyrs and too many deaths Too many lies, too many empty words were said Too many times for too many angry men Oh, let it never be again And they laid him in his grave while the bugle sounded clear Laid him in his grave when the victory was near While we waited for the future, for freedom through the land The country gained a killer and the country lost a man Too many martyrs and too many deaths Too many lies, too many empty words were said Too many times for too many angry men Oh, let it never be again Oh, let it never be again That was Phil Oaks with his great song, Too Many Martyrs. Next week on the show, we're going to have a retrospective about Billy Bragg. That's it for this week, folks. I'm Mitch Podolik. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you'd like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on gravel.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. 
Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik with technical production by Andrew Valpe. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. 